welcome to have you seen and yes my favorite missing persons that was an ellipsis this week uh we are talking about uh two of my favorite david fincher thrillers which is a genre in and of itself and one that deserves a lot more credit in my opinion uh my name is lee i'm your host and with me this week is stephanie donahue hi Stephanie is a longtime friend of mine. She's a former professional editor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hair flip. Y'all, y'all watch it. Um, and she's a big fan of David Fincher. And I wanted to get her perspective on these very interesting movies. Which movies are we talking about today? Well, we are talking about um, some of his most recent um, and some of my favorite of his films. Uh, so we're going to talk about Gone Girl and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, before we before we get into the blood and guts of it all, uh, we did want to do a little bit of just like a informal chat about some stuff coming out in the next few weeks that we're excited about. Not that it's even possible to see anything these days. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure the degree to which these will be available at different times. I just know that all of these are supposedly coming out between now and the end of the year, at the least in theaters, which again, what does in theaters even mean? I mean, they're going to have to be online in some form, right? That's my plan. Yeah, I'm hoping that it's going to be like week in theaters. And then even if it's not a Netflix or an Amazon or whatever kind of movie, it's going to be uh, on demand in some form or fashion. And it stinks that I'm going to have to pay that much to watch movies. But like this slate looks really good and I don't want to miss a thing. Like just imagine it's for the overpriced popcorn, right? Yes. Yeah, we're we're, save, we're saving money in some ways. Uh, definitely saving money on drinks, uh, making our cocktails at home while we watch stuff. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's just such a bummer to have an award season as good as what this one looks like and not be able to experience it in person. It's going to be really weird to see how things unfold. Um, yeah, just in terms of what the campaign season looks like and what the audiences look like. It's yeah, yeah. just many times. So what's a, what's a first movie that you're looking forward to, Stephanie? Um, all right, so the first one that came to my mind, probably just because it's been on Twitter a lot lately in terms of the buzz, um, is just coming um, right from Sundance, but it's called Minari, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but it looks like it's, um, yeah, it's going to be about this family who immigrates from Korea to America, settles and tries to make a life for themselves. Um, and yeah, I just basically everyone's been saying fantastic things about it it looks beautiful the trailer's fantastic um i just i just can't wait it looks like something that can be like you can just totally get caught up in yeah so that one definitely um what about you what's top of your list one that i neglected to mention in my first episode when i did a very brief overview of what oscar season is going to look like was nomadland which stars two-time academy award winner francis mcdormand and apparently there's a chance that she could become three-time academy award winner <laughs> uh because it just looks amazing it's supposed to be really good uh it just won a big audience award at a film festival it's directed by chloe zhao Okay, um, so yeah, Nomadland, it's about a woman who loses her house and savings in the financial crisis in 2008 and has to live in her car. And she goes on a journey and meets other people who have had to do the same thing. And I think it's a really potent reminder of just how scary that time was when we're in another really scary economic time. But it also sounds like another powerhouse performance from uh, uh, one of our greatest living actors. Yeah. So that that I'm really excited about that one as well. Um, I saw a bit of news about that, and just Francis McDormand is always always so great to watch. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, fun fact, this is not coming out this Oscar season, but I do want to make sure you as a Shakespeare enthusiast know this. Have you heard that Joel Cohen is directing a production of Macbeth with her and Denzel Washington? Interesting. That, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm a little bit nervous about Shakespeare adaptations, but you, you have me at Denzel Washington. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty psyched about it. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I hope it's better than the last Macbeth that we all had to sit through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Fastbender Macbeth was not great. It's no, real, it was real disappointment. Great. Yeah, it was. But, uh, that's yeah. I think what what was uh, what I always said about it was it'd be better served as like a coffee table book of like beautiful mm -hmm. images. Like mm -hmm. it just it it didn't make sense as a movie in my opinion. Yeah, definitely works better as just a tour of the Highlands than anything else. What about tell us about Dune? Yeah. Okay. I am. I'm so excited, but so nervous for this, um, which uh, I should say isn't because of any like loyalty to subject matter or anything. I have not read the books. I've just heard about them a lot. Um, but having seen the trailer and obviously the team behind it is extremely exciting. Um, the cast looks incredible. Um, you've got Timothy Chalamet, you've got, Zaya, you've got Oscar Isaac, like it's, yeah, it's, Oh man, and the trailer itself too. It's so fun to watch. It's so well put together. Um, and so I'm just, I'm really nervous because I've been burned by a trailer before, you know, but um, <laughs> this would be something really great. Yeah, I I don't know about you, but Denis Villeneuve has only let me down once and it was more of a matter of preference than a matter of quality. But of mm. course, this is an infamously unadaptable property. So like, yeah, who knows if even he can conquer it. When was the one time that he let you down out of curiosity? Oh, uh, Sicario. <laughs> Never, just wasn't a fan, um, especially because I went in very hyped because it had Emily Blunt and it just did not deliver for me. But Arrival, Incredible, Prisoners, which sneak preview, talking about that masterpiece next week. Ooh, exciting. Um, fun fact, Stephanie and I actually saw Prisoners together. <laughs> And we're supposed to go out that after we saw it, but it was a two and a half hour movie about child abduction. Yeah, and no. our friend texted us and was like, hey, are you meeting me at blah, blah, blah? And we were all like, I don't think we're going to do it. No, no I, think, I think we're going to get a drink and go home. Yeah, we're going to have one and then leave. Oh, God. Yeah, lots of lots of fantastic uh, movie going experiences that we shared together and several that I think um, just needed a nice drink afterwards to process. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, definitely thinking of after seeing Carol and just sitting in the lobby of the Violet Crown Theater in Austin and going, I mean, that was pretty much perfect. There's not a lot to say. Oh, oh yeah. That, that was a wonderful kind of processing. It was a very different sort. And then uh, speaking of getting drinks in a lobby, uh, On the Rocks, the latest from Sofia Coppola, looks yes. so fun. Yes. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. I mean, uh, yeah, I was reading an interview with Rashida Jones recently and her sort of talking about, I don't know, getting to like focus on a character who's, you know, a woman at this point in her life with a female director. It sounds like it was a really great experience for her. So that makes me really optimistic about the film. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to see Rashida Jones tested in a way. I've always been a fan of hers, but I've never seen her in something that wasn't pretty much exactly what I'd seen her in the mo in the most recent project she'd done. Yeah. And, uh, Sofia Coppola, when she's on her game, just really blends that kind of, you know, dramedy as cliche as that genre is. I, it's one of my favorite genres. Like that's kind of my go-to movie. And then the fact that Bill Murray is just playing a raconteur, like, come on, I'm serve it to me. I will pay all the money for it. 
yeah. uh, that one I know will be safe to view through Apple TV and right. Apple TV plus. So that's good. We have, we have something that we can watch. Yeah, that'll be really good. I mean, anything that we can get at home these days, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, speaking of getting at home, we watched two wonderful movies at home this week. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's start with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, just because that was the uh, the earlier made one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a synopsis of that movie, and then we can get into it. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, like, starting with Girl the Dragon Tattoo as well, because it's sort of marked a bit of a shift in Fincher's career, I guess, um, some might say, uh, in terms of him sort of going and doing these sort of direct sort of paperback thriller adaptations, which it wasn't the first time in his career that he did this, um, but that is, it is definitely a situation where he's working with material that came from the, the book, the source itself. Um, so yeah, the, the plot itself uh, basically centers around um, a rich Swedish family where there's uh, been a missing uh, person for decades now, a young teenage girl goes missing. And then the basically patriarch of this family wants to figure out what's happened. So he basically involves our two protagonists um, who stay separate for a good chunk of the narrative before coming together. But first is the journalist uh, played by Daniel Craig. And then you get the sort of hacker investigator character played by Rini Mara. Um, and they you know, each have their own interesting troubled pasts, but then they come together to try to take a look at this case. Um, that, yeah, that's my, uh, my quick summary. What do you have to add to that? No, I <laughs> like, think that's great. Um, I. I went amiss by not mentioning this earlier, but because of the content of this movie, I do want to give a a trigger warning because it has some extensive scenes of sexual assault and violence towards women that are essential to our conversation of it and essential to the movie. And this is, you know, a bit of a tangent, but in my opinion, extremely responsibly done, but they are, uh, they are very heavy. So if you seek this movie out, or if you're listening to this conversation, I just wanted to, to, to warn our listeners. Yeah, no, and it is an interesting place to to start because it is like, I think it took up a lot of the air in the conversation about this movie when it first came out um, mm-hmm. in the book as well. And when I was revisiting it, one of my first sort of thoughts, because it's been years since I'd watched it, was like, I wonder if this will hold up. You know, I wonder if this is still going to feel to me watching it now the way that it did when I first saw it, like this was a respectful and well done sort of handling of this. Um, and was very happy when, you know, it, it was. Um, it's, you know, very difficult to watch for obvious reasons and has always been that way. Um, but I do think that the content is, is handled in a really interesting way. Um, and in a way that, yeah, that respects the gravity of the situation. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, And I want to give a bit of context to just how significant the depiction is for what this movie was, I will say was supposed to be because what it turned into was very different. But so it was obviously a blockbuster novel that blew up about 2009. And then there was a really well regarded and worth seeking out if you liked this version, but haven't seen uh, the Swedish ones. The Swedish movies are very good as well. They Mm -hmm. starred Numi Rapace and uh, that was the role that catapulted her to stardom. Um, you may not know that uh, name that I'm probably mispronouncing, but you've seen her in a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, it when it was announced that they were going to make an American version, it did seem like an inevitability, I think, at least to me as a, as a film fan. But it was really concerning because how are they going to take this incredibly complex in terms of plot and then also in terms of its relationship to gender movie and adapt it for studio audiences. And their answer was they didn't hire, you know, 
Gore Verbinski or somebody, they hired David Fincher. Mm -hmm. And boy, he didn't water this movie down a bit. Like it is long, it's convoluted, it deals with Swedish history. Uh, and it it does not back away from the horror that the past inflicts on characters in it. And I, I don't think that a lesser director would have done that. I think a lot of people would have been tempted to just clean it up, clean it up and uh, make it more palatable. But this movie is incredibly palatable because of how good it is. But at the same time, it's very prickly and it's a very tough watch at times. Yeah, no, no, I agree. He really, I mean, he's always been a director who isn't afraid to like lean into the darkness of the, the subject matter at hand. Um, and yeah, that sort of unflinching take is definitely what we get here. Yeah, I love, um, so it opens up with the patriarch that you mentioned, Henrik Vonger, uh, played brilliantly, but not with enough screen time by Christopher Plummer, um, <laughs> getting this flower. And there's this thing, so so the the female relative of his who has, I think it's technically his grandniece, but anyway, uh, who has uh, been abducted and or murdered, we're not sure. Um, the killer of this person has been sending him framed flowers, which she used to give him as gifts. And so there's just this great moment where with no context at all, this incredibly sad man receives this framed flower. And it's, you know, there's a slow zoom on it on a desk and it's so creepy. And then we get something that really stuck out as bizarre this time, but I remember absolutely loving at the time, uh, this very intense, very, rock and roll very James Bondy title sequence with yeah yeah uh yeah let's let's dive into the title sequence a bit yeah let's I think it is worth revisiting my first thought was also James Bond and I like I remember like watch it and like making a joke like oh well maybe Daniel Craig just has this in all his contracts now mm -hmm. um but if you go back David Fincher actually does this in a lot of his films um where he does sort of weird stylized opening credit sequences um there isn't one in Gone Girl um but there are uh, several of these in, in other previous films of his so it, it definitely like I don't know why it's, it's a thing that he likes to lean on to set the tone I suppose um it I don't know it feels like it really leans into this kind of like stylized almost pulpy kind of nature of the story that he's telling but it's man it's weird <laughs> yeah, I think it I think pulpy is a perfect word because it shows you everything that you're going to get in the movie and it leans a lot on uh, symbolism and the my in my notes I have Bond movie but also horror movie but also SNM movie question mark because <laughs> um, it's very sexy and very uh, very sexual but it's also very creepy and very off-putting you know there's yeah. wasps crawling out of people's mouths there's like uh there's a this really scary image of someone being zipped up and trying to break through this membrane that is that is holding them back um and they're it's actually the actors faces which makes it uh again bondy but also like when you get into the creepier parts of it 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 really makes it very effective and i think it it does set a tone effectively. It just feels, when I think of this movie, I think of how much I love it. And then I think of the fact that it's David Fincher. So I think, oh, it's like an art film, but it's not an art film. It's like a, it's a pulp film. It's a rock and roll, like yeah. in your face genre film. Which is another thing that sort of like follows Fincher throughout his career, right? There's this feeling that he, he loves these sorts of crime thriller kind of stories. There is something very pulpy 
about a lot of his work, um, which is funny because again, this is something that kind of has come up recently. I feel like every time he makes a, a film since the social network, people are like, oh, wow, this is so like, this is such a like, you know, cheap paperback kind of thing. That's not what Fincher does. And it's like, well, did you forget Fight Club? Like, did you forget Zodiac? Like, what, what, you know, this is not necessarily new territory for him. Yeah, let's, let's get into Fincher territory because he is, he has a very interesting choice in person for the iconic director that he has become. He's in the pantheon of great post-postmodernists. Yeah. But, um, you know, he doesn't write his own movies like a lot of people do. He works with brilliant scripts and brilliant screenwriters for sure, but he is not a writer. Um, He's notoriously meticulous. Mark Ruffalo told this story about Zodiac where they they reset and reshot uh, 30 takes of a scene that is just one character walking through a crowd. Mm -hmm. He would reset it, go out into the thing, move an extra by two feet and then do it again. Mm -hmm. So he makes these, again, paperback thriller kind of things, but he's he's very much got the headspace of this, this auteur, uh, yeah. I hate to use this term, but real quote unquote director, as opposed yeah. to like, I don't know, somebody making a, I can't imagine who I'm talking about here, Transformers movie. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think it's, yeah, that, that meticulousness comes down to like, he definitely has his perfectionism and it's definitely very visual, right? Like he, like you said, he's not a writer. He's obsessed with the way that like the visual information you get in a frame makes a story happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's so many other details about that, right? Like he loves to do all these takes over and over again. And so he'll reset, you know, and, and redress everything. And one of the weird things he does about that that I discovered recently is he doesn't use any actual blood when filming because it would make it too hard to clean and reset and do his like 50 or wow. 70 takes. Once all the blood you ever see in a Fincher film is CGI. Wow. Um, so, um, or at least that's true in Dragon Tattoo for yeah. sure. I wonder if he learned that lesson after seven, because I can't imagine <laughs> how long it would take to clean up and reset in that movie. Honestly. Um, um, yeah, and another another thing I, I love about him is that he uses, uh, especially in the past, I think it's four films he's done, the same crew to the greatest extent possible. And so it really allows him to have cemented this very distinct uh, look for all of his movies. It's the two movies we're talking about here have the same composer, composer in yeah. uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who are just geniuses, um, has the same editors and it has the same cinematographer, Jeff Cronenweth. And mm-hmm. I think that in all three of those dimensions, and I know this is controversial and I'm not saying negative things about any of the other ones they've all worked on together. This is their collective magnum opus because the shots in this movie are just jaw-dropping um they shot all over sweden and europe and then they did some stuff in the u.s too um and then the editing in this is really it's just almost nauseating at times because you're watching a thriller and you you it's it's cultivating this real atmosphere of menace and terror Mm -hmm. and i think the editing is such uh an integral part of that and then of course you have this grinding almost stone on stone sounding score from Ross and Reznor that is just like you just feel it in your bones when it when it really goes yeah I just completely agree like I think everything comes together so well in Dragon Tattoo and the I mean the the visual like just the the images I guess (laughs) like the there's so many that just stick in your head like whether it's like the zoom on like the white house and the white snow Mm -hmm. or um 
and the color palettes as well, which is like a, a completely different, like we could talk about that for an hour with Fincher alone, <laughs> but like, I, I, like there's the scene where um, Daniel Craig is first having dinner with, I believe it's Harriet, the missing girl's brother. Yeah. Um, and so he's in his house and they're all together and everything is just so yellow. Um, and it's just, I, it's just really striking, like this sort of like weird, like Swedish minimalist style with that like one dominating color. Um, it's, it's just incredibly well done. Um, and I agree about the score as well. Like it's just, it does such a good job of just ratcheting up the tension and just making you feel the discomfort that you need to feel right when you need to feel it. Yeah. But without, without overly lifting, you know, it's not like a John Williams score in a not that good Spielberg movie, which there are several of their collaborations that aren't that good. And it, it kind of manipulates you. This just adds and, and it, it furthers, I think, everything that Fincher's trying to do, which is to unsettle you and to make you think that even though you're in the 21st century, you are in a place that is so remote, that is so cold, and that is so fixated on its own past that it feels like anything from the past can come up and get you at any time. Yeah, definitely. Um, I loved, you You mentioned the the dinner scene with Martin, uh, who's played brilliantly by Stellan Skarsgård. I know people think he's creepy. Get over it. He's a great actor. <laughs> I love so that good. man. He's so good in this movie. Yeah, he's, he is remarkable in this movie. Uh, the whole cast is pretty good, and we we need to jump back to that in a second. But the the dinner I reacted to was the one he has when he first meets Christopher Plummer's character. And mm. he's, um, they, they have this really bloody brisket that keeps yeah. getting cut to. And, um, and you know, he promises uh, Daniel Craig, the main character's revenge on this person who has, he's basically lost a battle of wills with in the, in the press. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he says, I'll, I'll give him to you. And then it cuts to this bloody brisket. And I was like, that's so on the nose, but it's so effective because- uh, yeah, and even even ten minutes in, it's it's already cultivated such a such a feel that that really you know works and is in completely in place. But I mentioned Daniel Craig. I I remember liking him fine then. I'm a big Daniel Craig fan. I love two of his James Bond movies very much. Um, but he is so good in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, and he's the only one who doesn't do a Swedish accent. And I remember making fun of him at the time, but like, I'm glad that he just used his own voice and delivered a great performance and have to worry about like faking a generic Scandinavian voice, which I feel like some of the American actors do do in this. Like just as for actors who are just acting in their own accents, yeah. like I, I think it can be completely fine sometimes. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, we do know he can do great accent work because as I was watching this film, I realized that uh, Knives Out was a bit of an accidental reunion film for Daniel Craig um, as a sort of investigator role with Christopher Plummer as the patriarch of a family. So... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and uh, maybe as much as I love Knives Out, which I absolutely do, maybe that's a great reminder of why he shouldn't have tried to do a Swedish accent. <laughs> <laughs> that foghorn leghorn realness that he was serving was, uh, was pretty extreme. <laughs> That is true. Oh, what a movie. Um, and then, of course, the other main performance in this was uh, Rooney Mara. Now, this was this was her big break. She'd done a few things, but she got an Academy Award nomination for this. It was oh, yeah. the first film to really hang on her performance. And, I mean, I think mm -hmm. she steps up to it in every way. She's completely chameleon-like and unrecognizable. She really throws herself into it. Um, 
this word is thrown out a lot when associated with nudity in, in movies for, for female actors, uh, but fearless. But I think this is fearless in a different way because yeah. you're, you're taking your first big chance to make an impression on audiences and you're deliberately surrendering any identifying markers, right? Like you're, you're allowing the one, the one chance you have to make an impression on casting directors for the next 10 years and risking that they're only ever going to see you as this incredible, unreal, uh, goth biker chick. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. It's funny. The other word that comes to mind is like, I don't know. I feel like there's such a vulnerability to the way that she plays her as well. Absolutely. And it's so, it's so moving and it's, it's a really, really interesting performance because she isn't just coming across as a very like prickly, powerful, sort of strong, like, you know, sort of punching back sort of character. But like, I mean, the work she does in just her, <laughs> like in her eyes and her face, right. like just, you can just see like how much of an effect, I guess, like her relationship with Daniel Craig has on her, the people around her, how much she's just responding to situations. Like, I, I don't know, it's hard to talk about eloquently but she mm. just was a very like a very strong sort of like raw emotional performance in this that I don't know it, it always surprised me a little bit and it's it's an incredibly raw and emotional performance without a lot of emoting it's all yeah. internal and it relies completely on her ability to convey stuff through movements and through small decisions that she makes in terms of how she interacts with another person um like the the times when she decides to observe even the smallest social niceties uh you know show an immense amount of respect even though it would still seem disrespectful if anyone else was doing it mm -hmm. and it, yeah. i think that also comes from the great script which is uh steve zalian's work he adapted it from the book uh he won an oscar for schindler's list he's one of the most successful screenwriters in hollywood in terms of i think just consistent quality um yeah. and he did a great job of taking this massive incredibly convoluted tome and really reducing it to its most essential bits. And it may not be the most, you know, accurate quote unquote adaptation, but I think it nails the important capital T truths of this story so well. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it, yeah, it definitely focuses the attention where I think it should be, which is on the effect that this case is having on the two protagonists right and sort of like their journey as they are wrestling with it and getting to the bottom of it like that it which is funny because that also tends, tends to be a theme that Fincher often returns to in his work I think mm -hmm. um but yeah I think that there's an incredible focus on them and empathy with them that the script and the filmmaking really work hard um work hard to to help us achieve yeah, I, uh, I completely agree. And I think the the character of Elizabeth Salander, who is Rooney Mara's character, the, the hacker girl we mentioned, she was such a big influence on people when these books blew up. Um, I think because she's a sexual assault survivor, but she's never written or portrayed as a traditional victim of that. It affects her and it re like it really significantly affects her, but it doesn't change who she is and it doesn't define what she does. And yeah. then of course there's an incredibly cathartic revenge scene on the person who assaults her in this movie. Um, it, it maybe strays into gleeful at times, but it's yeah. also so, again, I think if the performance wasn't as strong as it was, it would feel almost like 
Kill Bill-esque, but instead it just feels really like this is the only way that she can reassert her power. And yeah, it's- the phrase that comes to mind for me is definitely power fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's something about her character that it's this idea that's like, yeah, she may look like a relatively like skinny, small woman. You know, she may be at the mercy of other people in her life at certain times, but she has this ability due to her hacking skills, due to just her own intelligence to mm-hmm. be able to just turn situations completely around on their head and just basically have people completely at her mercy. And that's, um, yeah, like you said, it's a very cathartic and just fulfilling sort of thing to watch happen on screen um though you know there's there's a lot of dark spots along the way yeah especially we were we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording but there's the almost ubiquitous terminology of the strong female character and how frustrating that can be for actual feminists and how strong female character is just either i'm a woman who don't need no man or i'm a woman who is just so empathetic that I can take everything on. And I don't know, it's 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 like the, I don't know how she does it woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is none of those things. This is a woman who goes through life knowing how competent she is at the things she is competent in and then doesn't care about anything else. Like yeah. when she wants to sleep with someone, she approaches them and just makes the pass at them. And it always works because she's incredibly sexy. Um, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but like she also, when when she wants to solve a case, she doesn't, you know, sit back in an armchair and think about it. She goes into the in, into the library, into the archives in this in this movie and just dig and dig and dig and dig and work and work. And she just doesn't quit until she accomplishes the thing she sets out. But I think it's it's the lack of social nicety feeling not like an affectation but like an essential expression that those things don't matter to her so she doesn't pay them the slightest bit of attention that is to me the thing that sticks out the most and is the most empowering for me and again like so much credit to Rooney Mara for making her very much a a well-rounded and feeling like a full human person in all Mm -hmm. of this because there's such a way where you could almost make that into a type I guess like this kind of like very smart but very kind of awkward you know prickly young woman who just doesn't you know it doesn't want to go along with social niceties for whatever reason but like you just you really get something here that I think is like it's the core of what a strong female character actually should be which is a specific female character like she feels like she feels like a very specific person who could very much exist like you feel like you understand her a bit and so following her is just yeah it's it's so well done um Rini Mars' performance is such a gift. And yeah, I think I think they do a fantastic job with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the bridge I think we have between this movie and Gone Girl, besides just the same creative team, is uh, that this deals a lot with power, gender, and violence. And yeah. uh, I would love to know what you think and what you feel about the, the intersection of those three things in this yeah. movie. And then I think we'll use that to carry us through. Absolutely. I would, yeah, see, uh, having watched both of these films together really recently, the thing that sort of stuck out to me is that there is this, there is a bit of parallel, right, between the main character of Gone Girl, Amy Dunn, Mm -hmm. and then the character of Elizabeth here in in Dragon Tattoo. Um, You wouldn't think there is at first glance, I guess, but something that both these characters have in common is a really... (laughs) carefully elaborated revenge plot (laughs) that they sort of carry out on the men who they think have wronged them. Um, You often just, they clearly have. Um, But it it is this sort of 
sense of these women kind of almost flipping this script, taking agency um, through putting themselves into a situation that is, you know, very traditionally coded as feminine and victim and using that to get the upper hand, get what they want out of something. Um, and I found that really interesting. I hadn't really thought about that parallel before, um, but yeah, just rewatching Gone Girl the other day and thinking like, oh yeah, they both just sort of like set up these intimate situations with men where they are then going to emerge basically as like the victor with what they want, um, which, you know, plays out in different situations for both of them. Um, but it's- <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> but it, it's an interesting dynamic and it's an interesting sort of type of female character because, yeah, they're both, they seem very clear-eyed, very driven, very confident in terms of what they're good at. And um, yeah, when they've decided that there's something that they want to get out of a situation, then that becomes their mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with uh, with that, I think I think we can meander over and talk about Gone Girl a bit. Uh, Forewarning, this is going to be a spoiler rife discussion, but the movie came out in 2015. The book came out in like 2013. Um, and uh, I I would just say skip ahead yeah, 25 minutes or 20 minutes just in case if you're if you really don't want to, but I can't recommend this movie enough. Um, it's excellent, but there's just no way to have a substantive conversation about this without um without talking about the plot. <laughs> it's it's yeah. just too, it's too rich. Yeah, um, no, I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll, I will give a plot overview in case you haven't seen the movie in a while. Um, so Gone Girl is about a, uh, well, about a man who wakes up to discover his wife is missing. And like so many things we see on TV over the years, like so many true crime, uh, true crime obsessed uh, cases, the people around him start to suspect him, the evidence piles up against him. We are very deliberately given a pretty limited access to the world of this movie. We really only get his perspective and it looks like either he is lying to us, the viewer, or that everything is just lining up against him in a very problematically coincidental way, I guess. To, uh, to make it look like he really killed her. They don't know each other well. They've been fighting a lot. They have money troubles. He doesn't seem to know almost anything about her. Um, but what we come to find out is that his wife is a either sociopath or psychopath. Both terms are rapidly becoming less and less relevant in terms of criminal psychology. So I guess the distinction really doesn't matter. Basically, she's a very, very uh, bad person. And she has set her admittedly equally awful husband up for her own murder and what we get in the second and third act of this movie is seeing her side of this plot and then the way that they come together into a really uh uniquely horrifying conclusion i will say <laughs> yes absolutely yeah the only thing i would add is that the way that it's set up narratively and this is obviously a comes from the book itself but the way we're in the first half before you know what's really going on there's the alternation between the husband nick's point of view after the disappearance and then these flashbacks to her diary mm. um that you then later realize is at least partially fabricated so it's like this narrative that she has crafted herself to um to try to foreground um in her framing of her husband yeah it's a it's a wild ride <laughs> yeah i think i think this movie has even more uh, depths to mind in terms of gender than Dragon Tattoo because it has so many equally fascinating female characters in it. Yeah, uh, I mean, have... it was like, oh, go ahead, it, go ahead. 
Oh, sorry. No, it's, it's like the like think piece inspiration text of like the mid 2010s, right? Like it's just, there's been- No, it absolutely was. I, it was so, there were so many obnoxious, <laughs> this is what Gone Girl says about marriage. Ugh, oh my think pieces. And, you know, I, I feel like if that's your perspective, you're really missing the point here. Agreed. Um, yeah, so we have we have Margot Dunn, who is Nick Dunn, the main character, who's played, I think, brilliantly by Ben Affleck. We should come back to this because I can't believe I said that sentence out loud, but it's true. Um, uh, Margot Dunn, who is the twin sister of the the main one of the main characters played by Ben Affleck, and is she's also played very well by Carrie Coon. We have the lead detective on the case, uh, Detective Boney. Who is, uh, who is played by Kim Dickens. We have Amy Dunn herself played by Rosamund Pike who got an Oscar nomination for this movie. And um, we have ad admittedly much less interesting uh, mistress character. And then we have a very interesting but not on screen very much character in uh, Amy's mom who one of the other really, really interesting things about this is that Amy, the character is the basis of a series of successful children's books written by her mother called Amazing Amy. From the second the parents get involved in the disappearance case, they're saying things like, find Amazing Amy, bring our Amazing Amy home. It's like they're not even looking for their daughter, they're just looking for their paycheck. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, which I think adds such an interesting dimension um, to, again, the, the think piece territory here, right? Because if you're looking at, uh, the Amy Dunn character as this stand-in for like the the pressures women have to face and the roles they have to play. It's like how you could make it more on the nose, right? She literally has this like fictionalized version of herself. Yeah. who's like this perfect woman that her whole life she's been under constant pressure to live up to. Um, it's yeah. It, yeah, it's just on the nose. <laughs> uh, speaking of on the nose, what one of the things I love that I didn't remember at all, but there's no way I wouldn't have left the theater screaming about this in 2015 is. In the, well, I guess I didn't know the twist. Anyway, um, in the first scene, he Nick goes to his sister's bar with a board game called Mastermind. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh my gosh, come on. <laughs> come on, David Fincher. <laughs> what do you think of us? Um, but yeah, of course, it's, uh, it's a game that he is not realizing yet that he's playing and that he's very many turns behind on. So many, yeah. Uh, another thing that really jumped out at me, especially in uh, probably the first half of this movie, is there's so much imagery about death and, and of course, violence. But there's all these great lines like uh, he's being interviewed by the police and Nick says, I love having strangers pick at my scabs. Mm -hmm. There's the, um, the gorgeously composed image of they, there's a flashback to the beginning of Amy and Nick's relationship and they walked through this, they call it a sugar storm. That's not a thing, but whatever. They walk through a large cloud of sugar that is being loaded, uh, that is coming from these bags being loaded into a bakery. And her face is like completely white. And he wipes these two fingers over her lips and, you know, brings color into them. And it's just such a creepy corpse skull kind of image. Uh, when he picks his dad up and is taking him back to the nursing home where he lives, Don't Fear the Reaper is playing. Um, it really just twists those screws very, very effectively, I think. Yeah. I mean, the very first shot of the film, right, is like her still motionless head. Mm -hmm. um, and he's talking about like what's going on underneath her skull mm -hmm. um, before she finally moves. And it's just, 
yeah, it's it's definitely playing on this kind of weird, <laughs> very morbid kind of kind of imagery. Yeah, speaking of morbid, I can't think of anything more morbid than me praising a Ben Affleck acting job, but I think he's really good in this movie. I mean, I think he was also perfectly cast. Yes. Like there's a line early on where she says, so again, like in the flashback to their early courtship where she's talking about how like, uh, you, you, I just feel like you have a face that I can't quite trust. You have a very villainous chin. <laughs> it's just like, yep, the casting director just looked at that and was like, untrustworthy face. Mm. Okay, who have I got? <laughs> who have I got on my list? Yeah, there, there's some stuff in the um, the description of him by one of the news reporters once they're covering the supposed abduction, missing person's murder, whatever, is uh, that he's handsome but looks like an asshole, something like that, uh, or maybe that's in the book. But um, I love there's this, this now famous line of David Fincher's in an interview when he was promoting this movie, and someone asked him, you know, don't you think that casting Ben Affleck as this character is a bit obvious? And he says, just because casting Ben Affleck as Nick Dunn is the obvious choice doesn't make it the wrong choice. <laughs> I love David Venture so much. <laughs> yeah, he is a he is a wry guy and I absolutely love it. Oh God. But yeah, he's I just think he he really brings a lot of layers of assholatry to this character who's a total asshole. Like it's not just a one no, like he's a brat or he's a philanderer or whatever. Like he is just a completely he's a person who is not the best person and who has over the past few years gotten into a really bad place in every element of his life and that has made him weaker not stronger like he he acts like a kid in trouble all the time in this movie like he pouts and when um he gets guilted for not knowing something about his wife you know he really throws it back he throws tantrums and stuff i i just think it's a remarkable performance and i also think it's because of how well written the story is that yeah. he has so much stuff to do, but I, I just think he's great in it. There's so much like resentment piled up in this film. I feel like, and obviously the, the people in the marriage towards each other, um, but he does a really good job of embodying that kind of male resentment of just wanting things to just sort of fall into place in his life and then feeling like really wronged when they don't. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's all these great lines he has. Like uh, at one point he says to a cop, I'm sick of being picked apart by women. Another yeah. one is uh, someone's telling him he needs to get on this, uh, this news program and, you know, pretend that everything was his fault, whether he thinks it or not. And he says, oh, so what men are supposed to do in general? Like, he's just so awful. But at yeah. the same time, he is being framed for murder by a, you know, really, really messed up person. <laughs> I'd be pretty mad too. It's funny, like, and it's it's a frustrating thing about the gender politics of the story, right? And like, mm -hmm. and again, it comes back to the the book, the source material itself, where like, you, it does a really good job of like, sort of picking apart these sort of, a lot of the issues that men have with women, mm -hmm. but then by making the central female character actually a bit of a monster, it, it kind of complicates everything. Um, but I mean, I would just argue that he's a bit of a monster too in his own way, right? Like he isn't framing anybody for murder, but he is, pretty careless with the effect that he has on his wife's life and how he treats her so I don't know it's uh, kind of a this is how I was talk about the movie Fatal Attraction which is uh, a problematic fave of mine um it's like the way she is reacting and acting up to a point would be completely justified and is something that more people should do in terms of not accepting Mm -hmm. disrespect and not accepting lies and not accepting certain things but then of course it takes it to this what could be very problematic conclusion but I think when you look at Amy not as um 
a stand in for all an individual behaving, but as kind of a, a treatise, she's taking this idea to a logical extension, right? Of like, what if someone didn't accept the dissolution of their marriage that so many people experience? And what if they never accepted that from anyone because they had these expectations and they weren't met and they're just not going to accept that. And it just takes that to kind of a thought experiment conclusion that I find really, really fun, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. And I think one of the other sort of fun things about her character and something that this film provides is an opportunity to see as the sort of like mastermind one step ahead of everyone else, slightly psychopathic character, be a woman and be a woman like very much in a domestic situation and that to be the sort of fabric of her life and kind of plop someone down there and say like, what would this look like? Because we get a lot of characters like this, frankly, a lot of them in Fincher films as well, who are men as they usually yeah. are. Please kind of like more smart than everyone else around them, kind of don't care about the people around them, and they're just going to push themselves to the limit and see what can happen. And I, I don't know, it's very fun to see a film where the person doing this is a woman and where she's just sort of like, I'm not going to take anything from the men around me anymore, and I'm just going to go on a rampage. I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting and it, it's frustrating that you kind of get bogged down in these sort of familiar questions about like oh well if she isn't a good person then can we sympathize with any of the points that she's making and it's like well yes you can I think you can <laughs> I think I think we can still kind of enjoy the commentary that this movie has to offer in terms of the ways that like men fail women in relationships yeah you were allowed to watch this movie and think wow she's crazy but at the same time I get it that is allowed <laughs> and I think it's it's fair like I don't know. I, I just, I love the, the density with which this movie looks at not marriage, but relationships between and interactions between men and women. And yeah. I think one of the reasons that it gets away with a lot of that stuff is because the, her primary antagonist in a lot of ways, isn't her husband. It's detective Boney, who is uh, again, remarkably played by Kim Dickens and is just such a good character. She's just this rock solid. I won't jump to any conclusions. If something looks hinky, I'm going to investigate it. You know, she's not arresting people at the drop of a hat. She takes her time. Uh, and she's such a great character. And I love when uh, Amy is back in the picture and is trying to get away with this big scam she's pulled off. The one person who isn't fooled and the one person who is grilling her is another woman. Yeah. Yeah, and because that is something that basically from the book to the screen, they did lose a couple of subplots from Amy's past. It's funny, in the movie, they kind of only explore the men who she's wronged, but in the book, there are also some women along the way and some friends who she's really, really messed up. And so I think that's an interesting and important dynamic to sort of, again, establish her as a very specific woman <laughs> and not as like an avatar for all womankind, you know, um, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, something that we haven't talked about is the now the now famous monologue, the cool girl monologue that she has. So when we first get the twist that Amy is not only alive, but has arranged all of this herself, she talks about how she meets this, this guy in Nick and she likes him, but she is um, forced by him to play a role. Mm -hmm. now, of course, she's not forced by Nick to play a role, but she is like all women are in a way forced by society to play a role right yeah. and she has this great moment where she's driving down the highway and she looks into one car and then another and then another and is analyzing and generalizing the women in in, in these cars and the roles that they are choosing to play 
And she yeah. talks about how she played the cool girl role for Nick and then he changed his mind and that wasn't what he wanted anymore. And how she doesn't, that's not fair. And I mean, she's right, it's not fair. But at the same time, you make a choice to compromise things because you think you're going to get something out of them. And what's yeah. making her mad is the classic psychopath's dilemma of, I am not the only person in this world and people are not doing what I want them to do. And that infuriates me because my desires are the only thing that matter. Well, I feel like she's also articulating a very like, I don't know, I feel like it's a, an imbalanced situation, right? Where she feels like she has to keep up her end of the deal, but Nick is starting to become this person who she, I think there's that line actually makes it to the movie. Like, this is not the man that I agreed to marry. Yes. Like yeah. he isn't coming to the table with her and sort of, you know, he's descending into, you know, oh, we've seen the flashbacks, like him playing video games or like certainly then going off and having his affair, right? Like she feels like, look, if we're going to both pretend to be versions of each other that the other one's like in order to have a life together, then like we both need to do that or I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So I don't know, I, fi I find that take to be certainly sympathetic, but I also think like, oh God, this this speech is at the center of like all the think, think pieces, isn't it? <laughs> like it is like, I don't know. I think that it has interesting points to make. I think it also, it's doing character work, right? It's showing her as someone who like, maybe has a little bit of internalized misogyny going on in terms of her disdain for women who aren't as smart as her and haven't figured out the game and haven't decided to try to flip things back into her own favor. Yeah, um, There are definitely arguments out there that the way that Fincher directed and shot this scene made it feel like it was leaning more on that side of things than on the like, you know, cutting feminist social commentary about how women feel pressured to do this. Um, which having rewatched the film, I'm not completely sure I buy into. Um, it, it's quite a fleeting moment in the film. And it's true that it like cuts into shots of other women in their cars as she's speaking. Um, but I don't know, it did strike me as if maybe she was like unable, it does strike you as like, she's unable to maybe think about women as people who make these choices, do these things, just for their own reasons, because it's something that they like. I think it's interesting that in those shots that we see of women in their other cars, none of them are with men. Like some of them are alone. Some of them are with other women, um, you know, having a great time singing along to the radio. Mm -hmm. uh, but Amy Dunn chooses to see them all as like sort of in, re in relation to the hypothetical men in their lives. So I don't know if we're supposed to just assume that you know, the male director was doing this as well, or if that's supposed to be a character moment for her. I don't know, it's it's complicated. Um, and it's it's a complicated sort of speech and it's, yeah, there's a reason I guess why it's inspired so much argument <laughs> since yeah. 2014. Yeah, it's, it's something that's worth diving into because I think, I don't know, for me, the lens that I come come to this through is very much the lens through which I watch Hannibal, which uh, listeners you need to know is my favorite TV show. Um, and, this idea of psychopathy as an ego disease and so she's already sublimated her ego by pretending to be someone she's not in, in to an extent right with the cool girl thing of like she's affecting certain mannerisms she's she one of the great lines she has is like she's drinking craft beer um and uh pretending to watch a football game or something like that doing things that the cool girl would do so it's clear that she's thought about this performance that she's playing but then very naturally starts to resent the fact that she's performing and he was performing too, but then he stopped performing. Um, and I like, I don't know, the way I think about it is it's not a story in so many 
revenge fantasies of wives against husbands where she's under someone's thumb. I don't think she's under his thumb at all. I think that what she's unable to accept is that he's stopped playing his role to the best of his ability and that he's been ignoring her. Yeah. And I love that it's not a thing about quote unquote fading beauty or about anything like that. It's like, it's just about the fact that he's not as invested in this partnership as she is. Yeah, she just wants, she wants his attention. She wants his efforts in a way that she feels, and she feels entitled to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I I think that it does tap into this sort of feeling that a lot of women have about the the assumption of how our attention and efforts is just taken for granted, how how much labor is going into like this, um, this task of being attractive to the men in your life. and then, yeah, I think that she then just refuses to settle for a man who isn't also sort of trying to win her over. And it's interesting, right? Because then the, the setup that she comes to at the end of the film um, is basically one where it's like, you now know how much power I have. You know how much I can mess up your life. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very serious problem for you now that you need to keep me happy and that you need to make this marriage work and this relationship work. And I've done everything I needed to do to get you back on this side and back on the team of our relationship needing to continue. And it's um, it's messed up and horrifying. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I guess there's a reason why it struck a big chord. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's messed up and horrifying, but it's also fascinating. It's yeah. fascinating that she thinks this way and it's fascinating that it works, right? That's the thing that is so interesting is that whether she realized it at the time or not, she found someone who, when put under the right stressors, does end up sharing her view. And there's, Mm -hmm. okay, so we need to jump back a bit into plot. Um, So of course she has set him up. Uh, He's slowly looking more and more like he's going to get arrested for this murder. He makes this appeal that to the outside world looks like it's to a kidnapper or something like that, but really is directly to her and it's telling her what she wants to hear. And while she's watching this, she has through a series of extenuating circumstances, her escape plan has def- has basically fallen apart. And she goes back to this ex-boyfriend who's always been hung up on her um, and finds herself actually in the scenario that it seems like she feels like Nick put her in. There's this great line and this guy's played, eh, he's fine by Neil Patrick Harris. He's certainly not bad. It's just not that interesting of a written part, but um. He, uh, he's got her at this lake house and he keeps telling her, you know, she needs to do this, she needs to do that. And then there's this great line where he, he tells her, uh, the sooner you look like yourself, the sooner you'll feel like yourself. But of course, what he's telling her is like, I want you to look like the girl I want you to look like, the girl that I was in love with. And, you know, I want you to present yourself in the way that I prefer you present yourself. But how do you do that to someone who doesn't really have a self, they just have an ego? Yeah. I mean, I also think it's really important to stress just how horrifying that situation is. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that the existence of this character is really, really important for the plot, which is funny because he often gets glossed over in a lot of the sort of like marital politics kind of discussions about what's going on here. But he serves an important role because he is also this like really self-absorbed weirdo kind of yeah. character. Kind of like Amy Dunn, sort of a person who's like, okay, you're not a stand-in for all people. You're just a very specific, strange person. But in the way that he basically traps her and controls her, 
it again taps into this kind of power fantasy I think for women that she then just sort of is like nope and then murders him and gets out <laughs> like um murder is obviously a very extreme response but like it's very very creepy and strange the sort of way that he speaks to her and the way that he treats her and what he expects of her like I think that he's an important part of the world if this is a world where we're expected to continue to have even small amounts of sympathy for Amy in this plot because he he again serves to illustrate the kind of weird controlling pressures that she specifically and women generally I guess are under in relationships to men yeah yeah I I completely agree I think he is so effective the character is so effective at being creepy and menacing but never making anything close to a threat it's mm-hmm. just this veiled promise of oppression of like if she doesn't find a way out of this she's just going to be forced into a different role into a different housewife role instead of a cool girl she's going to be Betty Draper because this guy mm-hmm. wants someone who's gonna sit by the door waiting for him to come home serve him a drink as soon as he gets there uh, that he can bring to parties and you know take to Greece and all this stuff and I do want to talk a bit about the murder because I think the way that she kills uh, the character's name is Desi um, mm-hmm. the way that she kills Desi in this movie is one of the most this is so weird I'm gonna lose <laughs> followers I swear one of the most beautiful things that David Fincher's ever constructed like explosive words <laughs> the, the lighting of it the color palette um and I was gonna comment on how it's a little darker but it makes sense then if it's if it's CG that it would come out a little darker than if it was you know the the corn syrup and red food coloring that we that filmmakers use most of the time um, well, it's a very glaring color too. Like it, it comes across a very bright red once she's fully soaked in it. And it's really jarring because you don't get a lot of bright colors in a Fincher palette ever. No, yeah, it is It is a real shocking departure. And that whole house is because it's full of so much white. And I feel like even though white is a neutral, it's not a neutral he uses. Fincher would almost always go for a gray. But mm. that house is full of this really warm wood and white towels and a white bed. And um, then is very quickly filled oh, with a lot of blood. Was- like in their clothes like it's yeah it's, it's a weird yeah. weird yeah 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 it's interesting I don't know that scene like it, it's a funny one because for a Fincher film it's relatively light on actual gory depictions of murder <laughs> yes, yes. Um, until this point and it, it is a departure because up until that moment like you have not had a really like you've not had any shock moments of like great blood or gore um mm-hmm. so it, it does stand out um in an odd way and the way that it's filmed as well like there's a lot of like if I'm remembering this correctly then I think there's a lot of like really like quick cuts and fades kind of going on and it really like it, it's very punctuated <laughs> like it yeah. definitely is meant to stand out as this visually weird moment mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's yeah I'm glad that you brought that up it is the, so the scene in Dragon Tattoo where Elizabeth is at the club and it does those quick fades to black that are set yeah. to music, it does that, but in th- this case, it's a it's a sex scene and then a murder. Right. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's so interesting that he uses the same technique in two completely different things because there's nothing remotely predatory or threatening about the way Elizabeth is at the club, but boy, oh boy, because you know that she has stashed a box cutter in the bed. You know what's coming from the second this guy gets home. And um, it's, oh man, it's just so affecting. 
Yeah. Because that is the first point also for this character. Like, she's never done anything quite like that before. <laughs> well, um, I mean, she did frame a guy for rape. Still didn't literally murder him, though. That's true. That's true. That's a bit of a step up. <laughs> we, are, we are escalating our behavior here. As he says when he's like, she's graduated from framing a man for rape to framing him for murder. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is certainly the scene that is the most... Um, to go back to that word, the most pulpy of anything that uh, that appears in the film. Yeah, that's when it that's when it goes to the level of like this woman who's now traveled across Missouri and has killed someone in a very ridiculous way, and now in theory she's free and can do anything. But of course, the interesting plot twist of of many many plot twists is that um, she takes his car, she goes home to Nick, and basically his appeal to her to not let him get executed for killing her has worked, but now he's in just as bad of a situation in that this woman that he knows is a murderer and is capable of literally anything is back in his house and he can't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and there, the last act of this movie, it's so interesting because it doesn't end with their reunion. It ends with this bizarre bartering, series of kind of bartering scenes of them, um, you know, she's saying, these are the things I need to feel safe from you. These are the things that I'm going to offer you in return. And, you know, she's making these appeals and he's just like, no, you don't get it. You're nuts. You don't get it. Like, I don't want this. And I'm going to wait till the Fuhrer dies down and then I'm going to bail on this marriage. So finally she ends up, and I guess we're not really confirmed if it's true or not, but I'm assuming at some point it has to be because he capitulates to this, but she reveals to him that she has held on to a gosh this movie's weird a sperm sample and is pregnant yep yep that's yeah <laughs> so yeah let's let's talk a little bit about the ending and about um the way she leverages pregnancy and fatherhood towards a man who didn't ever seem to want that but it it, it but it works spoiler alert right because you have the like the conflicting narratives right because like in her version of her diary, which we now know is like extremely unreliable. She claims that like getting pregnant was her idea and something he, she wanted. And then he like got really angry at the prospect and didn't want that. And then he claims in a conversation with his sister later in the film, that like actually he was the one pushing for kids. And, you know, he basically you know, did his part and I quote. Um, so that's why the sperm collection exists. But then she backed out of it when it was her turn and she was like, actually, no, I don't really want to go through with this. So we have these conflicting accounts of whose idea it was to have a kid and who had cold feet. Um, but it is, God, it is interesting and plays into this like really unpleasant narrative, right? Of like a woman who's just trying to trap a man with a kid yeah. and like, have this suburban wholesome family life. And it's funny, I am remembering now like all those all those think pieces that happened and reading some of them and and some of them sort of saying like it's interesting that for this like big super villain woman character who is like the like brilliant psychopath who's like outsmarting the men around her, her ultimate goal is like dominance in this domestic sphere where she's able to like have a man around her finger and like get him to do what she wants so she can be like a housewife and a mother right like it's just a bit weird but i guess that is the that is the stakes at play in the world of the novel and mm -hmm. that is what you know what we're looking at here um 
but yeah, in terms of, it, it is one of the things I guess that makes you think that it's a, a story that's dealing in symbols. I don't know. What, what's your take on the ending? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting, right? That the, that the final way she wins is by using a, a kind of tried and true stereotypical tactic of fixing a marriage of what are we going to do? Things aren't working. Let's have a baby. Yeah. And of course she's able to do it without him and through some incredible conniving, but like, it's just fascinating that there's all these extremes, right? They're setting you up for murder. There's, she's at one point contemplating suicide. There's murdering someone else. But at the end of it, what she does is what so many people in relationships do, which is have a kid. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a movie that I think can be dissected again and again and again. And it's just, it just never stops being fascinating. Um, I, I love, there's this moment when he's, so they're sleeping in separate bedrooms because obviously he's terrified of her. And mm -hmm. um, she goes into his room and is like, you know, you can stay with me if you want. And he, uh, he's just like, no, I'm, I'm good. And she, she says, you know, I would never ever hurt you. And he just makes this face. <laughs> and I, I love it. I, man, it's, it's just a heck of a movie. Like, uh, can't recommend it to you enough listeners. Um, I also love how much it feels like a 2010 period piece. Everybody has landlines. Everybody has cable TV. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's just a really fascinating kind of look at a time period that we both remember very well, not just because it was recent, but because we were, this is when we were young. Well, we're still right. young adults. And, and like the, the On the Nose mentions about the recession as well. Yeah, like yeah. Really, really like nails it down to a specific time and place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both these movies have really interesting things about class, Gone Girl especially, because uh, Amy is from an incredibly rich family that, of course, has been made rich through books about sort of her. Uh, Nick is from a working class family in Missouri. Amy's from New York. Um, and the action takes place in Missouri, and they're having this rampant homelessness problem, even in big developed communities because of the recession. And mm. so there's these people camping out in these McMansions that are vacant, because there's just no one who can afford to fill them. And it's, it's a really fascinating look at, um, you know, the, the, she's able to navigate high class a lot better than she is uh, able to navigate middle class in terms of her parents never questioned any of the stuff. She could just say, oh, this thing went wrong with this guy because yada, yada, yada. And they would just believe it. But in the middle class, I find that people ask questions of her and are suspicious of her. But at the same time, uh, there's some really interesting stuff about how how swayed everyone is in this movie by TV. There's a great recurring Nancy Grace style character. Um, and uh, there are some people who you can tell have been watching the shows and are very convinced. There's a great exchange between Detective Boney and her partner uh, where the guy, <laughs> he's talking about, it's obvious he's guilty, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, my wife says, she has, says he's a killer. And Boney just goes, well, if Tiffany says, it must be so. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I just, I love how it, how it looks at reality TV, how it looks at, uh, I mean, and you talk about very clinical fake marriages, arranged romance. I mean, look at reality TV. Um, man, there's just so much to this movie. Mm -hmm. And of course, to this book, which can't recommend the book enough. It is for a thriller, especially it's very literarily written. I, I was really blown away by it. I don't know about you. I saw the movie first and then read the book and it made me like the movie more. And I loved the book. 
and then I, you know, just watched it again for the second time this week and it was excellent. Yeah, no, I agree. So I watched the film in theaters when it first came out and then, yeah, got around to reading the book last year at some point. Mm. Um, and then just really enjoyed them as like separate, but equally great experiences. I mean, obviously there is, there's a bit more color and a bit more detail in the book as yeah. often happens. Um, but you know, the movie is a, it obviously <laughs> like with, with David Fincher at the helm, it's a really tight and well put together piece in its own right. So yeah, if people are unfamiliar with this story, then I, I point them in either direction. It's like whichever one that you get to first, um, it's going to be a, a great ride either way. And yeah, and I would say the same thing with Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. The book is great. Um, both the movies, the Swedish and the American are better works of art, but the book is dynamite. Um, I also, we didn't talk about this, but there are several sequels in book form to the, uh, to this, to the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo that are all excellent. But because David Fincher, you know, like we talked about, didn't back away and made, really committed to making this complex, dark, very, um, you know, very heavy in subject matter movie, it didn't make that much money, despite yeah. people having high expectations. And they just never warranted a sequel. They made a sequel to one of the non-canon sort of books because the author died, it's a long story, a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, it's a shame because I'm, you know, knowing how that story goes, I would love to see how Rooney Mara tackles some of the, the stuff that happens. Yeah. I mean, it's a funny one because it's like, it's such a good film as a standalone film mm -hmm. that I'm not upset that, you know, what happened is what happened. And, you know, if it has other things he wants to focus on, then, you know, we don't need to tie him to a big franchise. That's fine. Um, but yeah, everything just went so right that it, it would be really, it would be great to live in a world where there's a little bit more of it. Yes, I would love, I, there's no chance of this happening, but it, even if they picked it up a decade later now, it would be so great. Like just to see Daniel Craig get to do a couple more and just to see Rooney Mara do a couple more. Um, there's but yeah, so much... Finch is one of those directors that's just so like, he really picks his projects carefully and he does not have a giant library of yeah. films to his. Yeah. yeah, he takes his time. I mean, uh, he's releasing his first film this year. Is it since Gone Girl? Yeah, since Gone Girl. Yeah. Well, he's working on. He's been doing Mindhunter on TV. Yes. Okay. He's also producing on House of Cards for a long time, so he's been doing stuff. But yeah. it'll be. Um, very excited for his his new film. It's a black and white period piece, and I'm I. He's never made either of those things, and I'm pretty excited. <laughs> I guess yeah. no Zodiac's a period piece. Um, I think that's true. Yeah, but uh. Yeah, two two great movies that we can't recommend enough. Yeah, they're they're both great. I think for me, Dragon Tattoo edges Gone Girl out, but I think at the same time, Gone Girl held up much better than I had anticipated. Yeah, no, I agree. I think Dragon Tattoo is just it's one of those films that you feel like it's like the best version of itself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever it set out to do, like everything delivered and everything clicks and works together so well. Um, and Gone Girl maybe falls shy of that just slightly. Um, I, I do feel like there's are moments where the dialogue's a little bit, a little bit odd. Um, it's not quite as visually striking in some ways, I think. Um, but all told, it still like tells the story it's trying to tell extremely well. Um, and I definitely think it's it's worth a watch and it's worth a rewatch. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I and I just think like like we already said. Uh, 
Cronenweep's uh, composition on Dragon Tattoo is just next level. Like, there are so many shots, like when she's chasing someone through the forest on her motorcycle and the way they chose to shoot that was really beautiful. Um, there's the now ubiquitous Fincher shot of um, the camera going above someone from behind and then uh, like hovering over their head while they're working on a computer. I don't think that's ever be done better than here. Um, mm -hmm. And there's uh, the, the final shot of the movie when she's just walking down this, this uh, Stockholm street in the snow yeah. is just jaw dropping. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that is um, funnily enough, two of three Fincher thrillers that are going to be covered by this podcast because next week we are talking, a, uh, we're taking a brief step away to a, a slightly different genre that I'm calling two and a half hour Jake Gyllenhaal movies that are really, really, really bummers. Um, so we're doing <laughs> Zodiac and we're doing Prisoners. Both of them okay. are streaming if you want to watch ahead of the episode. But Ooh. thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it, Stephanie. Yeah, of course. Thanks for asking me on. This is really fun. And uh, we will see you next week on Have You Seen? Uh, before I forget, my social handles, my uh, Twitter is at Lee underscore H underscore Henry. You can follow the podcast at have you seen podcast on uh, Instagram? And I'm working on getting a Twitter for the podcast itself. Uh, thank you so much, guys, and we'll see you next week.